Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Hello and welcome to The Nose. Uh, later in the show, we're going to be talking about the HBO adaptation of Philip Roth's The Plot Against America, adapted by none other than David Simon uh, and his writing partner Ed Burns, uh, they of The Wire and lots of other stuff. Um, we'll also be talking in the first segment about people who have a crush on Anthony Fauci and sort of kind of COVID crushes in general, because I think you have to put Andrew Cuomo and maybe the Cuomo brothers into that conversation as well. Also, we're going to talk about an essay. You know, people are trying to sort of capture the reality uh, of this crisis with an essay. Uh, but before I introduce the panelists, because we need to get this out of the way, it's really kind of the big story of the day. You may often hear me refer to somebody named Kat or Kat Pastor. She is the technical producer of the talk shows on WNPR. She does the job Kion Wolf used to do. She's the person who's in the studio right now so that I don't have to be in the studio. Uh, and she keeps the whole thing going. And it is Kat Pastor's birthday today. So if this were any kind of normal day, we'd be having a big party back at the WNPR building. Instead, here I am in my house. But happy birthday, Cat Pastor. We could not do this without you. And there will be a parade uh, when all this is over. Uh, joining us now for the nose, there's only going to be two panelists today. And that's because I'm finding three panelists when I can't see panelists. It's kind of hard. It's hard to sort of orchestrate the conversation. So Rich Holland is a uh, principal at CoLab, founder of Free Center and commissioner uh, of Online, of Cultural Affairs for the City of Hartford. Irene Papoulis teaches writing at Trinity College. She joins us by Skype. Uh, it's not clear that titles will be important much longer anyway. We all may be just servants of Lord Humongous uh, as things break down. Not really clear. So somehow or other, I'm going to smush two things together in the first segment. Uh, one of them is uh, an essay all three of us read uh, in the Los Angeles Review of Books. Uh, it's a, an essay written by a historian of science, um, and and it tries. Well, he he tries to capture his own perceptions of what's going on during this crisis, um, and. He wrote it, we should say, I, I think uh, in late March, but not all the way at the end of March. It's called COVID and Community by Stephen Shapin in the LA Review of Books. And I think it'll seg segue nicely uh, into our subsequent conversation about people having feelings of romantic love and lust towards Anthony Fauci and perhaps other people as well. But let's go to the writing teacher uh, first here. Um, Irene Papoulos, the essay is a very specific thing, and one could argue that the essay is made for situations like this, where somebody has to try to get down in prose uh, a certain set of ideas, feelings, movements, trends that are coming together all at once. But perhaps you'd like to elaborate. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, I could give a critique of this as an essay, but for now, I have to say that I was I love the beginning of the essay. And I think we're going to mainly talk about the point that he ultimately made. But in the beginning, he talks about 
the way it is for us not to be able to touch each other and the things that get in the, in, you know, how, you know, like we have, we have these, um, you know, now we, we try to do things like bow or touch feet or just like wave or things like that. But those aren't really part of our culture in the way that they might be for other cultures, because for us, the handshake is so integral. And, you know, and it, it sort of rem just this morning, I thought of it because I went out to get my newspaper that was thrown onto the thing that's still a, an essential worker for those people that do that, um, which I think is kind of interesting, but I'm so grateful that I get to have the paper. But anyway, so I was picking it up and there's this little girl that lives um, a couple of doors down from me who loves to tell me things, you know, and so she came running across the lawn between our two lawns and she's like, Irene, you know, I found a lucky clover, you know, and I and I had this moment of panic, like, what am I going to do? I'm going to have to say, no, don't get too close. Don't get too close, you know, but then she when she got about maybe 20 feet from me, stopped and started yelling across the <laughs> expanse of 20 feet. And I thought, wow, yes, of course, parents have to teach their children now that you just can't run up to anyone anymore. She's been, you know, I'm sure her parents taught her and then her little two-year-old sister came and did the same thing. And they were yelling at me across the space, but they were not, they, you know, they didn't come any closer. And I thought, wow, so they're being conditioned, socialized into a different kind of relationship with two bodies in space than the rest of us were or even than our children were. And I feel like he sort of got to that in the article. Yeah, Rich, I thought he made that point really well, uh, particularly mentioning the fact that it seemed like a violation uh, not too long ago when Trump would not shake Nancy, Nancy Pelosi's hand uh, at the uh, end of the state, at the beginning of the State of the Union address. Uh, and then it subsequently seemed like a violation just a few weeks later at the Rose Garden where he was insisting on shaking hands with all, all of these leaders from the business business world, some of whom seemed genuinely uncomfortable with that idea. So what once what was once a plus is now a minus. Sure. So he I agree. He made that he made that point incredibly well. And um, and I also want to uh, be cautious about um, the the calculus that we're doing right now, because um, because uh, I'm seeing that we're doing forever calculus again. Um, and we tend to get into uh, into these situations like what happened, uh, you know, in 9-11 and you know, in all of these other places that we're in, assuming that uh, that the condition that we're in is a condition that will remain in, uh, that these kids are, are forever going to stop at 20 feet because this is the current condition. Um, I'm not seeing a whole lot of... Um, evidence uh, for long-term uh, changes in, in how we are fundamentally as people. Um, I'm seeing like, uh, I don't believe that this one virus is what's going to change this uh, human desire to touch. And I think that that's a piece that, um, that he started to raise in, in the article, but didn't go further into, right? You know, so he was talking about how um, this is a, like, our social norms. These are, this is the stuff that we know. This is part of our, you know, in a way, part of our biology. Um, but uh, um, what are we going to do about that moving forward? I'm not entirely convinced uh, that he made the point that um, not touching is going to be uh, forever new. Yeah, I think one of the things, and, and I think it's, as I said in our emails, difficult to write an essay at a time like this because, yeah, you are, the image I use was, 
he's sort of at a dim sum restaurant that's run by Wiley Coyote. All of the waiters are on rocket roller skates and they're just zooming by and he's trying to grab a few uh, little morsels with tongs. Uh, it's, it's such a complex changing situation. I mean, I think it's definitely a situation that has a before and an after. Uh, and, and that after is going to look somewhat different from before. But how that plays out across a multitude of variables is the thing, Rich, I think you're saying is the exactly that, that there's no guessing. I mean, to, uh, we were uh, prior to to this call. Um, I was on a call with a uh, with a group of folks who are involved in uh, public art and they're involved in uh, urban design and uh, community organizing. Right. So. Um, so we're taking, we're trying to have a conversation uh, at this awkward time uh, to plan for what's next. Uh, but really, it came down to we have no idea right now. Um, we have no idea what's next. We have no idea how to plan for it. Uh, we have no idea how much we can change the the urban landscape. You know, what is what would a society look like? where the cultural collisions of cities uh, are more dangerous uh, than they are uh, potentially uh, innovative. Um, I, don't, I don't know that, that we can answer that. I don't know that uh, we can answer the rate at which technology and innovation is going to uh, fill in the gaps of what we don't know right now and what we can't imagine right now. Right. So the, the, yeah. all, the, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Irene. Yeah, I was just going to say that um, I think it's the fact that we can't answer it that makes us all walk, you know, really on edge and anxious and paranoid and sort of imagining, you know, apocalyptic scenarios because we nobody knows. You know, there's so many, you know, like, are, is Trinity going to have classes in person in September? We don't know. You know, everything is everything is so precarious that that sort of lends, uh, you know, leads us to a sense of, uh, you know, sort of. Right. Uh, you know, anxiety and paranoia. But so, Rich, you don't seem to feel that is, way. Yeah, go ahead. Isn't it kind of fascinating, though, that uh, to a certain extent, um, in intellectual circles, uh, a lot of what folks have been uh, hoping for is, uh, or leading themselves to, is this place where they actively don't know. You know, where we could acknowledge the, in a way, the liberation of not knowing and yet here we are in it and panicking instead of feeling that sense of liberation. So one of the places uh-huh. our, our essayist is trying to go ultimately, though, is how expertise and authority are processed by people. And one of the things that he gets into is the fact that everything, even something as urgent and definitive although, as you're saying, not definitive in a, in, in a, in a universal way, uh, as COVID-19 gets refracted through personal experience, personal preference. Uh, and, and, and so everything is, is personalized. So uh, there are people like the three of us who are taking this very seriously. There are people who are kind of taking it seriously, but secretly believing that or privately believing anyway that it's blown out of proportion. There are people who are having kids' birthday parties with bounty castles <laughs> and there are people yeah. as, as he pointed out have going into secret bars and clubs in berlin uh there was sort of a rebellion in australia about one of the beaches of course we're australians we're going to go to beaches we're going to sit close to one another on the beach and 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 so shaken says you know this is one of the ways in which 
everybody has decided today to react kind of personally to things that were, aren't necessarily personal in nature. I hope I'm stating his argument correctly. But yeah, Rich, you were going to say something. Oh, no, no, no. No, go ahead. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I was I was actually listening, uh, quite intrigued um, by by the by these elements of of what's personal in, and um, also uh, what's consistent, right? You know, so so if there's a, I was watching this um, this FBI because we've got time on our hands now, uh-huh. right? I was watching this show of this uh, FBI investigator uh, who. Um, who tries to identify spies and he's looking at their body language and a whole bunch of other stuff. And um, what he broke it down to is in the sense of what you're talking about now, Colin, that, um, that there are these, these kind of cues that we keep thinking that we should be looking for. uh, But that's not really where the truth is, right? The truth is in, in continuity. It's in, and it's in context, right? So, uh, so we're looking at uh, what folks are taking personally. We're looking at people at the bouncy houses and we're looking at, and again, I keep getting back to liberation because I think he was talking a lot about um, freedom in the context of authoritarianism, about um, this outside force needing to come in and supplant uh, how we're going to be. Um, and uh and I think that, that what happens is it's not about just the kids in Miami Beach going on spring break. It's how it's all unfolding in continuity and what the norm is that we're willing to, to absorb as a whole. Yeah, Irene, I thought one of the things that he um, brought up that I hadn't thought about this way, he brings up Plato's argument that that. Um, a physical reality can change our ideals uh, about behavior. And he gives the example of a boat. He said we might believe uh, in the most democratic forms of government and behavior possible, but it doesn't work on a boat. You can't really consider everybody's opinions on a boat. Somebody has to be in charge. Somebody's rule has to be law, uh, irrespective of uh, what lots of other people think. And it got me thinking about web culture, which I argue is the opposite of a boat. Every It's a customized reality. Everybody is completely free to pick and choose what they believe, who they pay attention to. And in that kind of situation, it's really, really hard to impose any kind of top-down reality. Everybody has already decided, no, I will decide personally. Uh, what's what's meaningful to me, and and I I would go further and say that's in, in totally uh, invaded our political reality. I mean, the reason that Bernie Bros can't transfer alliance to Biden is they have a personal connection to this. It doesn't personally resonate me to resonate with me to have Joe Biden uh, as president, and I think you could apply that to Trump too. His followers have a very personal, not necessarily. Uh, thought out reason for for giving him their allegiance. Anyway, I'm babbling. Go ahead, Irene. Yeah, and then he he makes the point that young people are the ones that are more worried about climate change because they're going to be around longer. Older people are the ones that are more re- worried about COVID nineteen because we're more likely to get it to get to, to get seriously sick from it. I mean, I think there's there's you know it's also it's interesting because. Of course, we think of things personally, you know, like I was even thinking, all right, so I'm thinking about whether Trinity is going to have classes. That's such a that's such a narrow um, concern. You could argue I'm not thinking about the larger culture. And the, and it's interesting to think, OK, so web culture invites us to just as long as everything is basically going along. OK, 
out there, you know, like the, 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 you know, things are moving, I can go outside, I can sort of, there's some kind of rationality, there's some kind of logic, we don't necessarily have to think of the really larger picture, you know, but now in this, in this, you know, apocalyptic moment that we're in, we have to, you know, it's sort of, it's, it, it, it has become dangerous to be focused. I mean, I guess in some ways it always is dangerous to, fo- to only focus on your own experience, but it's now become really dangerous at a different level of dangerousness. And we need somebody to run, you know, to drive the ship, you know? Right. It's so not- that's, that's a perfect yeah, segue. Uh, so we've been yeah. talking about this essay, COVID and Community by Stephen Shapin. I think I said his name wrong a couple of times from the LA Review of Books. But as Irene says, Rich, we need somebody now in a way because we react personally uh, to, oh. to things rather than structurally to things. Um, it, it sets up a, a perfect situation where, in fact, America might become thirsty, as one essay we read uh, uh, called it, for Anthony Fauci. Uh, There's a way in which um, Anthony Fauci, because of who he is, as well as his credentials, as well as his expertise, as well as all of the things that in a very empirical way ought to matter, uh, there's a way in which he, uh, well, I don't know, Rich, take this away from me. People are having, people want to, they want to do Anthony Fauci. There's no way to sort of cover that up. It's really fascinating that um, in the context of that article, one thing that I do want to bring up uh, is absolutely people want to do Anthony Fauci and um, and uh, are, are starstruck by a scientist, which I applaud. I applaud uh, folks who, you know, who have the hots for scientists. Um, uh, I also note... Um, this idea that so many people are in this article were cited to call him cute um, uh, in this in this sort of adorable puppy dog way, um, which which seems to be uh, a welcome change uh, from this Ayn Rand style um, uh, Superman uh, that comes in and uh, and powers his way through uh, uh, through all situations that um, what's uh, resonating uh, is a contrast that, that Fauci brings, is that he's warm and he takes really complicated ideas and humanizes them, uh, and, um, and that he has a kind of Brooklyn charm to him that you want to trust. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, well, I was just... I think it's interesting, like the idea, you know, sort of like a a particular kind of sexual fantasy, like somebody who's cute and warm and loving as opposed to the brute, you know, the Ayn Rand brute, like, you know, grab you by the hair or whatever. But, you know, but I think I I would say, though, that underlying the 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 sort of cute fantasy and that picture of you might have seen about of Fauci and his like basketball short short basketball shorts you know from high school you know where he does look really cute but there's also um, yeah (laughs) I think it's also there's also a little bit I wouldn't necessarily say that those two are completely different you know because I think part of the part of the lust for Fauci is that he can take over you know, he has the capacity to to fix it in some way, like to sort of control the situation. If he were le- if he were the one if he were the only one in control, he could take care of us, 
you know, in a way that we're not, we don't feel we're quite being taken care of right now yes. with other people um, in charge also. So I think there it's, it's, it's the cute fantasy, but it, there's also an underlying uh, strength and, and not brute force, but um, force. But, yeah. If, if I'm going to add to that for a second, I mean, um, I think about um, all the folks that are being uh, called out right now for this, uh, for this, uh, for COVID lust, right? Um, we've got the Cuomo brothers. Uh, we've got um, uh, definitely Fauci. But the person to me that was the the largest symbol of of peace and calm and made me feel like you know somewhere in this universe everything's going to be okay um, was uh, was Merkel, and uh, she delivered this address that was just so intensely human uh, and captured what leadership really is. And I don't know why I'm not hearing people thirsting about that. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I, I do have a theory about that. We should say that by some reckonings, Ger Germany is the success story, uh, mm -hmm. just in terms of preventing deaths and stuff like that. And Germany has done this pretty amazing job. They had as, almost as big a problem uh, facing them as Spain and Italy, and then they just took it in a whole other direction. But I think there's an answer to that. And I did. It's funny. The article that we read about thirsting for thirsty for Fauci was written by Caitlin Tiffany in The Atlantic. And near the end of it, she quotes the anthropologist Helen Fisher. Mm -hmm. I dug out an article I had written in, I think in 1994, where I also interviewed extensively Helen Fisher. And at the time, it was about the question of uh, NYPD Blue was on the air. There was this character, Andy Sipowitz, who was played by Dennis Franz, not an attractive guy by any stretch of the imagination, not good looking at all, not in shape. Uh, and ABC executives, I interviewed ABC people who said, oh no, we get bags and bags of, of mail. This was back in the days of mail, uh, you know, with proposals, I want him. where is he gonna be? Um, and I explored that with Fisher and she said, you know, I mean, this is not a particularly woke sentiment that I'm about to uh, evince here, but she said, really, this goes back to the grasslands when we came out of the trees, women really needed somebody who could protect them and share resources with them. And that was easily as important as conventional ideas about male attractiveness. Uh, somebody who seemed to have a kind enough and generous uh, uh, disposition to be willing to share, say, a gazelle haunch or whatever uh, had come into his possession, and somebody who had the competency to, to get those resources. That's a that was a very attractive uh, set of traits thousands of years ago. And it doesn't, and, and it's in our wiring still. We still think that way. We still react that way. We release neurochemicals uh, in response to that kind of thing. But it doesn't cut the other way. I mean, one reason people probably aren't thirsty for Merkel, even though she's all of those things, she's got the mm -hmm. wrong chromosomes. I, I, I would think the answer is unfortunately as simple as that. Which is really sad for older women everywhere. <laughs> you know? Well, I, and and I got to tell you, it's just it's it's a it's super sad to me as well. Um, I just want us to evolve beyond that. And and, uh, and I think we are evolving too. I don't want to say you Rich? chromosomes. Can you can you, Rich? Did you translate your 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 love of that of that speech by Merkel into any any element of lust? <laughs> You know, I don't lust that like that. That's that's a whole other thing for me. But you would probably yeah, buy an Angela an Angela Merkel bobblehead doll, uh, Rich. Oh, absolutely. I, I could sell you that, right? 
You could absolutely sell me that. Yeah. Because you'd want to see there. I think that she's, she's just brilliant. I think that she's on it. And um, I think that that's what leadership looks like. The reason I mentioned this is the, the National Bobblehead Hall of Fame and Museum has announced that it's raised $100,000 for personal protective equipment for healthcare workers through the sale of new Anthony Fauci uh, bobbleheads, going like hotcakes. Uh, and, you know, I could see, I could I could kind of dig having an Angela Merkel bobblehead, too. And, you know, you'd reach out and you could touch it and it would sort of, you know, bobble and that would be kind of nice. And you know. It would nod approvingly at you all day long. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be one way to interpret it if you had a healthy ego. Uh, so I just want to, since Rich mentioned the Cuomo brothers, I I, I do feel this gets back to the Shapin uh, essay. I, I've certainly encountered a lot of people. I, I had one guy early on email me to say, what do we have to do to get Biden just to give all of his delegates to Andrew Cuomo? This has to happen right now. Biden isn't doing anything. Cuomo's so great. Um, you know, so he just has to do this. What's the mechanism? for it. And I wrote back and I said, you know, typically when people have exhausted themselves campaigning for president and they've essentially won the nomination, they tend not to just hand it over. You know, <laughs> this is somebody who's worked really hard and come from way back in the pack and has achieved a big success. He's probably not going to hand it over. And, and the, but the reason people want this to happen is because they're starting to have a personal reaction to Andrew mm -hmm. Cuomo and to the Cuomo brothers in general. And it's great television and they're really Really good television characters. He's a terrific television character who's the mayor yeah. uh, of New York State. And the other one's a great, Chris is a great television camera, uh, television character who's an anchor person. So, yeah, somebody react to that. Yeah, they, and oh, they yeah. talk about their mom. Sorry. Go ahead, Harry. Yeah. Well, right. I was going to say, I think it's because, I mean, I did when I first saw his press conference, I was like, oh, my God, I'm so gl glad to be from New York, to New from New York, because he stands for what we believe in. But I think it's because he has he, he has a combination of strength and vulnerability. You know, you feel like he's feeling it with you. You feel, you know, which is sort of the thing that Clinton had. And, you know, it's so powerful that he has like I, the way he says I instead of we, you know, like I'm going to make sure that I get. 40,000 ventilators, you know, because I need it, you know, I need this and I need that. And so it's, it doesn't come across as a, as an egotistical thing. It comes across as a, I know that I'm in charge and we just, we lust for that. But then mm -hmm. at the same time, he has this vulnerability of, you know, of, you know, he, he's upset, he's sad. He, he's, he, he feels for people who are sick and dying. That's, that's a fascinating part about this dopamine testosterone dance, isn't it? Because there are folks who, prior to this moment, fundamentally disagreed with everything that this man stood for, you know, and, and thought that he was a nightmare on New York and, um, and are now taking a look at yeah. how he is in this one crisis situation and extrapolating that to how he would lead a nation. And, and I just want to caution everybody who's doing that, that on, uh, in 2001, yeah, you would have been throwing your vote behind who? What's what's uh, that lovely guy that was the uh, uh, governor that was uh, heading up? Um, ah, Trump's uh, non-attorney right now. Rudy Giuliani. Oh, Giuliani. yeah. You would yeah. have been throwing your vote behind Rudy Giuliani then. Yeah. I well, I yeah. think I think then. Yes. I mean, crises 
create in us certain sets of reactions and 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 at a certain point you do need to know how to play the role of the mayor of mm -hmm. new york or the governor of new york and rudy stepped up to that i mean when you when you started to pick all that apart rudy didn't hold up all that well uh mm -hmm. but at that moment and and that's i think something to be aware of just to go back to something you rich said at the beginning of all this is you know there's a real difference from what we think reality is right now when we have a very heightened set of responses to everything that's happening vis-a-vis -vis what reality is going to be. And one thing that I've been telling to be, telling people about Andrew Cuomo is, yes, you're reacting to him in a very powerful way right now because it's right now. Uh, and, and yeah, you may have a whole bunch of different reactions down the line. I think I just repeated. And I'll kind of say one thing, too, yeah, because sure. it's a fantasy. You know, that's why we call it a fantasy. It's not like we would really want to be in a relationship with Andrew Cuomo, right. you know. It's more just that, the, you know, and that, I don't know. I think the thing with the nipple ring that they brought up is really interesting, too, in the article. But, you know, like, does he have a nipple ring on? People wouldn't say that about Fauci, but they would say it about Cuomo. So he sort of has that edge of sort of strange mystery that's appealing but it's a fantasy it's not it's not it's not like we're really looking at his policies and and judging accordingly right okay we have to take a break um and we're going to come back we're going to talk about the plot against america i do just want to quickly say my son has become kind of obsessed with the cuomo brothers and he'll say to me no i really think you know they weren't just busting each other's stones i think chris was really going after andrew on the air last night and he keeps saying joey it doesn't matter <laughs> this is kabuki right now it doesn't matter what they're really feeling all right we got to take that break and then we'll come back All right, we are back now. This is Colin McEnroe. I'm in my house right now. By the way, this, there's a landmark thing that's happening right now, which is that my dog, Declan, is not allowed in the radio studio here at the house while I'm on the air. That's not my decision. That's another person's decision, and she happens not to be in the house right now. So he is, he's made it so far all the way through the show without barking. I now just jinxed that whole thing. Uh, but we're uh, lucky to have Rich, Rich Holland with us today, Irene Papoulis, two of our favorite nose panelists. And we're going to talk about the plot against America. Once again, this is uh, an adaptation of a Philip Roth novel. It's adapted by David Simon, most famous for The Wire, uh, and his partner, writing partner, the actor Ed Burns. Um, this is about uh, what would have happened uh, if, in fact, Charles Lindbergh had run successfully against Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, as an anti-war, let's not get into World War II candidate. But there, of course, there's a lot of baggage that goes along with that, having to do with Lindbergh's views about who was driving uh, the bus towards war. So uh, let's hear a, a little clip fr from the movie. You're going to hear one of the protagonists, uh, Herman. He is uh, talking uh, with his neighbors. Herman Levin is played by Morgan Spector. Uh, you'll hear him talking to his neighbors. You'll hear Zoe Kazan as his wife, Bess Levin. Here we go, Kat. This is how it starts. Everyone thinking they can work with the guy, that they'll bring him around. It's like Hitler. Everyone thinking he doesn't mean what he says. Exactly. But this, with Lindbergh, he's giving permission. He's a goddamn hero. So if he says it, every anti-Semite has permission. The Lone Eagle, he flew across the ocean. He wouldn't lie, he's a great American. The papers and the radio guys, they all lap it up. Well, they lap it up because it's Lindbergh. Coughlin says it, or even Henry Ford, they argue back. 
No one will go after Lucky Lindy. Is he going to run for president? Against Roosevelt, he'd be a putz. He's a hero, as you said. A hero. No way. A hero now. But if the Republicans run him against Roosevelt, after all he did to get us out of this depression... Who says we're out of it? Worst is over. Says you. A lot of people still aren't earning what they once did. I know plenty still out of work. People aren't patient, not with Roosevelt, not with anybody. And no one wants another war. That's for sure. Uh-huh. Roosevelt's a professional politician, a leader. He's an airplane pilot with opinions. Always blaming Jews. Win or lose, there's a lot of hate out there. And he knows how to tap into it. I have to say, I'm struggling with my own reactions to this <laughs> series so far. I'm very interested to hear what the panel has to say. So, Rich, uh, get us started. Uh, how is this working for or not working for you? Um, so I am fascinated with that point in history. Um, so And also, um, uh, uh, Roth and Weisel are two of my literary heroes. So um, on that level, uh, I'm just, I mean, you could hear it in the clip right there. The, the writing is just so good, um, so incredibly good. Uh, there is an element of, the, of how this, when and how this, uh, this uh, series is hitting uh, that wants us to pay attention, that wants me to pay attention to, to the parallels that are going on. I mean, in that clip that you just played, you could have changed a whole bunch of names mm-hmm. and have it been exactly about where we are right now. Um, and there's that's the part of it where, for me, this series is falling apart. Um, I could take a look at it as a, a what if then and take a look at it as... Um, uh, these ideas that uh, that both Roth and Weisel have about uh, repeating histories, and um, and uh, and appreciate that, but the comparison the, that that we just so desperately want to make uh, to resolving the unknowns of this moment don't come together for me because they never actually get to uh, explaining uh, the why, uh, the why, the stuff that's lying under the belly of, of this, this, of Nazism or fascism or what have you, uh, exists. And, um, and I think that, uh, that, that the first hour of what happens in this series could have been a series on its own, mm-hmm. uh, because there's such rich tensions and conflicts in just those moments, uh, that we rush to playing them out to seeing, you know, the legs that they have, uh, that I just keep wanting to rewind uh, to get to the, you know, to get beyond my expectation of how it unfolds to how do we prevent it. Irene, how about you? Wow, that's really interesting, Rich. I mean, I I kind of have the opposite. Um, Like when I was watching the first one, I, I, I sort of felt I almost wanted to invoke the Carolyn Payne rule, which she once said on the nose about she doesn't like the exposition and shows, so she just jumps to the second episode. And because I sort of felt like when I was watching the beginning, I was like, I've seen this before. I've seen the cars. I've seen the dresses. I've seen the, the you know, the dinner, the dinner where everybody's talking, you know, talking at once. And I sort of felt like, okay, it's going to be one of those. But then when I got into us, you know, the sort of thing that was pointing toward the parallel to, to our current situation, I became more engaged and interested. And I didn't, I sort of felt like it did explain it, but maybe I was reading into it 
so much from my sense of our current time. So, you know, I, I, I'm not quite sure of that, but I thought it was really became really, I mean, Winona Ryder is so good in her depiction of the, of the sort of, you know, the kind of naive attitude that a person can have and how, you know, I mean, I can't wait for the rest of it. Well, I think one reason, I mean, yeah. I had a similar reaction to yours, Rich, and I think one reason we're having that reaction is, so far anyway, that's not the way the story is told. I mean, it's not for the most part a story about people who become Lindbergh adherents. Uh, it, you know, there are some people who become Lindbergh collaborators. Uh, John mm -hmm. Turturro plays uh, a particularly opportunistic rabbi, and yes, Winona Ryder plays Evelyn, a sister of this nuclear family, sister of Bess Levin, who decides to throw in her lot also with the, this rabbi. But both romantically and uh, career careeristically. But for the most part, Rich, it seems like it's the story of this Jewish family, the Levin family and the people around them and the ways in which each member of the family responds differently. So, I, I, and once I sort of accepted that fact about it, it's really the story of a specific family in Newark, New Jersey in 1940 and how they all processed through this, what it did to them, not just the nuclear family, but the extended family, I thought, well, yeah, maybe just meet it on that level and stop asking the question that you and I have both yeah. been asking. Yeah. And that's, and that's the part of this that I find really engaging and I'm going to watch it all the way through um, without a doubt, because I, I think that the, the relationships are rich and they're so intensely complicated and, um, and written with an, with a, uh, with a keen insight and um, and there's a poignancy to it, you know, that uh, that that I find, and a delicacy uh, that's classic Roth. Um, uh, and yeah, so I'm absolutely hanging in there. So my so so if I wanted to so if I want to be clear about my statement, um, uh, I just love the series and I highly recommend it. Uh, the what I have to confront is um, my own need. Uh, to make sense out of where we are right now, um, and uh, and to assure heading into an election cycle that we're not going to keep repeating this thing. Um, so we need to kind of understand why this repetition happens, not just what the problems are with repetition. Right. So uh, there's a term here on the nose, a term of art. We call it the Papulian through line. It's named after Irene Papoulos, who's very good at connecting things together. You know, my Papulian through line that takes us back to the Shapin uh, essay that we began with, Irene, is this notion that although we don't see a lot of these Lindbergh followers, I, I think we can intuit that, yes, they are responding from a point of view of personal gratification. In other words, uh, if Lindbergh's, if I sign up with Lindbergh, he, he'll look after me and my needs, and I won't have to think about how my choices, my political choices in this case, are affecting people who are much more vulnerable than I am. So if I just act based on my own personal experience and my uh, own personally refracted understanding of what's best, uh, then I can guiltlessly follow Lindbergh. And, and the alternative to that uh, 
uh, is sort of the main character almost, Morgan Spector playing Herman Levin, who is a guy who really does believe in institutions and expertise and the belief that something unique has been cobbled together in the form of the American Republic. And given Mm -hmm. that fact, this can't go all the way off the rails. It ultimately will have the capacity to write itself. And and Irene, one of the things that's a little uncomfortable for us is that he appears to be wrong. Right. Yes. And that's why it can't just be about that's why, at least to me, it isn't just about it can't be just about the family because the family is in this world. You know, I mean, it seems like that's that's, you know, how we are with this pandemic, too. You can't just say, well, I'm just going to ignore it and live my life as I really want it. You can't because it's out there. And it's the same thing for him. You know, if you're Jewish and you're surrounded by anti-Semitism, you can't just say, well, no, the institution's going to hold. And so that's the that's really why it's it, that's what it's about. You know, like is is, you know, um, I don't know. He re- he reminds me of my father so much because my father also had anyway, because had those beliefs in those in those institutions. You know, the institutions are, are, are what I believe in. And so he 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 just he he like you say, he's wrong because because the institutions are not cooperating in the way that they should and that he wants them to and that they logically should. They're not. And so his family cannot exist just in itself. Yeah. And frankly, you know, his outrage so, of the institutions isn't changing a thing. Right. The, exactly. What are, what are so the, to me, the, the go ahead. through line that I saw came down to isolation, you know, that, uh, that that's the thread that's running through all of this. Um, uh, and isolation as this double-edged sword, it covers where we are, to me, where we are right now in this pandemic uh, with this double-edged sword of isolation. Uh, it was the you know, the, this promise of isolation in, in the form of a limited freedom uh, that they were talking about um, in, uh, in this movie where, you know, where you couldn't even volunteer as an American to fight against uh, uh, the Germans here uh, without that becoming like a very big problem because you weren't uh, walking in step with uh, our isolationist um, modality at the time. And uh, and I think that that's that uh, that that's a thing that Fauci is selling really nicely right now, right? Uh, he's he's able to walk up to a to a microphone and say, you know, I've never really been about handshakes, you know, and start to strip that out of our culture in a way that we find acceptable and a okay, and still find him like you know, sexy boy. All right, that was some very impressive Papulian through-lining that Rich Holland just did there, uh, and we have to yeah. stop. The series is uh, HBO's The Plot Against America. Uh, we think you should watch it, but it will not be. I'm finding it very not easy to watch. <laughs> it's something I really have to gird myself to do. Anyway, uh, we'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll make some recommendations.
All right. So uh, time to see some thank yous. I said one at the beginning, but I can't say it uh, often enough. Uh, thank you, Kat Pastor. Uh, it's her birthday today. Uh, she's the technical producer of the talk shows uh, at WNPR. She's therefore the person who's in the studio making everything happen today. Uh, when she does this, it means that a lot of us don't have to go into the studio. So uh, you can imagine how we feel about her. We feel an incredible gratitude. Also gratitude to Jonathan McPants, who put, uh, put this episode together and uh, worked with the panelists. Uh, we also thank our bosses, Katie Tularski and Tim Rasmussen, the tech people, uh, Gina Amatruda, Joe Koss, uh, TJ Coppola. Uh, thanks to all of you, uh, and thanks to all of you for listening as well, too. We're going to be back on Monday with a scramble. Uh, we, I think, on t- by the way, tomorrow uh, at noon, we'll re-air the episode that we did on Wednesday of this week about sex in the time of coronavirus. It is... It's not an NC-17 episode, but it's about as R as the Colin McEnroe show has ever gotten. So be forewarned about that. But we thought it was good. We're going to share it with you one more time, noon on Saturday. All right. Some recommendations. Here we go. Uh, Let's start with Irene Papoulis. Okay. Um, So I have three quick ones. The first is a novel uh, by this guy named, he's Pakistani-British named Moshin Hamid, H-A-M-I-D. And the name of the novel is Exit West. Um, And I sort of felt like I just discovered it, but then I realized it was one of the 10 best books of 2017. But it kind of applies to our time because it's sort of about a, it's sort of magical realism, but it's about a war and people are, it's an apocalyptic landscape, refugees. But I find it very soothing and absorbing and interesting and readable, very, very readable. Uh, and I, so I highly recommend it. It's called Exit West by Moshin Hamid. Also, for a, my guilty pleasure is Insecure on HBO. If you have HBO to watch the other show we were talking about, there's, you know, it's just kind of a really nice escapism and the next season is about to start and she's just, it's just fun. Like, who's she going to fall in love with next and what's going on with her job and that kind of stuff. But it's very, very, I think, very, really well done. Um, insecure. And then also, if you like fresh bread, I love fresh bread and I always try not to eat that much bread and everything. But recently, Hartford Baking Company started having you can order bread online and then just come up and they bring it out to your car and it's just baked that day and it's so good. So I recommend the Hartford Baking Company to get some bread if you want it. Ooh, I'm picturing a stampede. Uh, all right, uh, Rich Holland, uh, what are you going to recommend to us? Uh, two quick ones. Um, well, I don't know if they're quick. Uh, one, uh, early in 2001, um, I saw this, uh, this movie called Wit. It was directed by Mike Nichols, starring Emma Thompson as Vivian Baring, uh, who's this sort of detached English lit professor uh, who's got ovarian cancer and is going through these sort of experimental treatments and uh, unpacking uh, how she's always met the world. Um, uh, it basically shaped my response to the events of September 11, uh, later that year. And right now I'm finding that it's also, uh, affecting my response to what we're living through now in this pandemic. It's got this take on, uh, intellectual distancing and how that causes a sort of universal spiritual suffering. And, uh, and I highly, highly recommend it. Um, and you can get it on Netflix right now. And really quickly, uh, Stanley Plumley is a poet, and uh, I've been picking up books off of my bookshelf next to my desk to read, and I've been reading Now That My Father Lies Down Beside Me. Uh, it's in HarperCollins' book, 
Uh, there's some just absolutely lovely, lovely pieces in here, including one called Complaint Against the Arsonist, uh, worth a read. Stanley, Stanley Plumley. It is National Poetry Month, so I will absolutely check that out. All right. So I'm going to recommend in terms of binging, uh, well, the third season of Ozark, if you've done the first two seasons, it's on Netflix. If you haven't done the first two seasons, get going. It, it is very, very addictive. I, I, I found that the third season completely wrecked my bedtime schedule, and I do need to get so lots of sleep these days, and it wasn't helpful. But it's also full of really, really incredibly pressing I would, moral questions might be putting too fine a gloss on it. These are people who are already committed to levels of depravity. Uh, but within depravity, there still exists moral choices in a way that maybe I'd never quite understood before. So, yeah, third season of Ozark, if you, if you did the first two. Yeah, Irene, you want to uh, double down on that? I second it. Yeah. I just want to double down on it. That's a really good way to put it too. Like there's there, the, the levels of morality within the immoral. That's, that's a really, I, I love that. So my, and my la other recommendation is going to be a Tanisha Dugan type, type recommendation, which is, you know, it is the most beautiful time of year or one of the two most beautiful times of year around here. The flowering trees are amazing. The bushes, the, you know, they're all coming out right now. You can walk down the street and walk through almost a carpet of white flower petals from dogwoods or cottonwoods or whatever the hell it is. that's <laughs> shedding all these <laughs> petals all over the place. And the moon is unbelievable. The last two or three nights I've been out yeah. last night i was walking by the governor's mansion and it was hovering full moon right over the governor's mansion flag fluttering in the wind of course i didn't have my phone with me to take a picture but you know don't forget that you know i, I know we're all just wound pretty tight and we're, we're coiled up in balls of anxiety uh and you know out there there's beauty there's just incredible beauty uh and we live in a very beautiful place particularly at this time of year so thanks so much to irene papoulos and rich holland uh to cat pastor to jonathan mcnichol thank you for listening we will be back on monday it's cozy like a cracker barrel yeah we'll be laughing talking joking Talking about this and talking about that and talk about everything as a matter of fact. Oh yeah. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.